Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today, we are in for a special treat. Today, we are talking to none other than Jason Miller. Welcome, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me on, Joe. (laughs) It is actually Dr. Jason Miller, but he says he doesn't go by that. But he's the only doctor on my podcast so far, so... Please forgive me if I don't call him professor or doctor. I went to school for too long not to do that. (laughs) So for those of you who don't already know Jason or follow Jason on LinkedIn, please do. He is a professor at Michigan State, and we'll get more into his uh, credentials in a minute. But he has some of the most interesting and insightful posts about logistics and supply chain. He does. I think you call yourself a supply chain economist, right, Jason? Yeah, that is correct. So we'll get into that in just a minute. But if you don't already follow him, I know it's a common name, (laughs) Jason Miller, MSU. Please follow him because he's got some excellent stuff. That's how I got to know him. I think Kevin Hill might have introduced him years, like last year. Yeah. (laughs) And so I connected with him. I was supposed to do a podcast like a year ago, but finally we're getting around to it. So welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for coming. Again, thanks for having me on. Yep. So Jason, before we go any further, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Jason Miller. I'm a tenured associate professor of supply chain management at Michigan State University's Eli Brogue College of Business up in good old East Lansing. I'm also the Withrow Endowed Emerging Scholar of the college right now as well. Nice, nice. For those of you who are not familiar, MSU is an excellent college university. It's massive. I live about 45 minutes away and so many of my friends went there, so I went up there and played around when I was a young man. And it is a blast for one, but it's also an excellent university. One of my daughters went there and got a great education, a great job coming out of it. And I think I think it's the number one supply chain school in the world right now. Am I wrong to say that? U.S. News and World Report has this as number one. I, I just like to say we're a very good supply one chain school. One of the best. <laughs> and and a, lot, a lot of our peers are good as well, but we, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a very good place for a both undergraduate and graduate education and supply chain. I always see when I see those college rankings, it always kind of drives me crazy because I feel like it's like saying this is the best boyfriend or this is the best wife or like this is the best friend. Like, isn't that a little subjective? <laughs> but regardless how you cut it, Michigan State is one of the most respected supply chain schools in the world. So. Jason, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How did you end up becoming a professor at a pretty young age, a tenured professor at such a young age? So I uh, grew up in a small town in Northwest Ohio, honest to God, called Hicksville. If you don't believe me, type in 43526 (laughs) uh, and uh, there's an area code and it will come up. So after I graduated high school in 06, so that put me in undergrad and graduated in 2010 from John Carroll University. And as you can imagine, that was just a joyous time to come out as a undergrad. So fall of 09, John Carroll's a small school. My graduating class was, I believe, about 620. And so we knew the professors really well. And a lot of the business professors went to the gym at the same time I did. So even though I didn't have some of them, I was good friends with them, knew them well. And we're talking one day, this is about September of 09, they said, Miller, what do you want to do in your career? I'm like, well, 
you know, I'd like to get a job now out of this, but, um, you know, eventually I could see myself going back and teaching maybe a little bit on the other side and, you know, maybe thinking of getting a PhD and they're like, well, go now, just trust us, go now. And so talked with my advisor, Paul Murphy and Paul liked the idea ended up putting in for a few places, Penn State, Michigan State, Ohio State, University of Maryland. And Ohio State was the first one to sort of get back and say yes. So I started right out of undergrad in the logistics program down at OSU. I had no idea what I was getting into, did not realize that getting a PhD in business nowadays means you're going to go take a lot of statistics classes and a few business courses in the mix. So went down to Ohio State, found out I really enjoyed statistics. I ended up getting a minor in quantitative psychology of all topics. And for my dissertation, I ended up focusing on how driver turnover and also electronic monitoring affected safety in the trucking industry, merging some survey data that a colleague of mine, John Saldana, had done in 2011 with data from the CSA program on carrier safety. When I graduated in 2014, went out to Colorado State for a couple years, and then really wanted to get back to the Midwest because my family's from Ohio, my wife's from Ohio, and we were expecting a little one who was born actually out in Colorado in um, early 2016. So I made the transition to Michigan State in uh, May of 2016, and just in, been enjoying it here, you know, teaching, publishing, I uh, got tenure back in 2019. And so, yeah, so just doing research, engaging on LinkedIn, and I teach in the spring. Excellent, excellent. And Jason, I did mention this when we were prepping, but I'm not so far from East Lansing, and I remember just being at, I think it was Peanut Barrel, right downtown, right on uh, Grand River, yep. which I've been to with my buddies many times in the past, but this time I was just eating. <laughs> and uh, what was weird, I was with my daughter, and she said, Stop for a second. Stop talking, which I don't usually do. But you could hear every conversation around us was in a different language. It was just crazy. That's what it's like at Michigan State, which is kind of weird because not East Lansing's the capital. East Lansing's got 50,000 students or however many Michigan State. It's a big, big school. But so many people from all over the world studying at that university. It's kind of nuts. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, having been to Ohio State, I mean, Ohio State's even another 14,000 more students, which is difficult to believe. But yeah, Michigan State's, I think, over 50,000 now. I think those are two of the largest universities in this country. They are two of the larger. I think Michigan State hovers around eight or nine. I think Ohio State's around four or five. I know Texas A&M's bigger. I've got some friends down there who, you know, College Station, you know, this little town and then throw 70,000 students in about eight months of the year. It's got its, it's, it's well, the whole, uni- the whole, the city of East Lansing just revolves around the students, obviously, and the faculty. But anyway, before we get into the supply chain, oh, I didn't even mention today's topic is supply chain basics. And we, who could we find better to talk about this topic? But before we get into that, Jason, talk a little bit about these things that you post on LinkedIn, because I think they are fascinating. Again, Jason's, when I asked him what he calls that, he's called the supply chain economics. And it's unique insights, and I've been to some extent. I believe his conclusions more than I believe many other sources, just because he shows this math. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of what I post about. So my area of research expertise is transportation, and especially for hire trucking. 
So kind of starting with that as a base, I'll talk a lot about, okay, where is contract pricing at from Bureau of Labor Statistics or CAS Freight Systems? How's the spot market evolving using data for the DAT puts online? And a lot of what I've been focusing on more recently has been with the tremendous uncertainty at, that we've seen with the COVID-induced lockdowns is really trying to make sense out of how we can have a situation where spot prices in trucking are at historic highs as of August and September, yet employment is down five and a half, six percent, and contract prices are still down from where they were prior to this, and certainly down from 2018 levels. And just trying to make sense out of all of this using a lot of government data because you know we pay a lot of money for the Census Bureau to be able to collect incredible data every month on retail sales, wholesale sales, industrial production. The Federal Reserve does the same with production. Bureau of Labor Statistics collects all this data on pricing and really trying to convey, I think, to the broader community that you know, we keep talking about the need for more data analytics and leveraging data. And I think a lot of times when people hear that, the first thought is, well, we need to go create our own measures or we need to go out and pay somebody for this. And my response is, there's a lot of free data online. You just have to know where to go look at it. And the FRED database maintained by the St. Louis Federal Reserve is probably the single best universal data source for macro level strategic business decision making that exists. Jason, the problem is, I know the government has tons of good data. I'm sure they do. (laughs) But we pay for that, obviously. (laughs) But how many people know how to crunch it like you do? How many people know what they're supposed to be looking at? I know that's why you're a professor, you're teaching tomorrow's youth or today's youth how to use that information. We'll get to that in just a second. But I think it's fascinating because we have so many organizations now, DAT and Freight Waves, and probably many others that I'm not mentioning, create tons of good data that I think we've become very dependent on. But I still, you know, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. You look at the data, unless somebody else crunches it for you, you don't do much with it. And that's why, again, why Jason's one of the better followers on LinkedIn. Oh, you're, you're far too kind. I mean, <laughs> I, I look at it this way. The, the state of Michigan is paying me for the next 40 years to do this. So... <laughs> I need to provide value in every way I can just beyond teaching in the classroom. Well, excellent. Well, speaking of adding value, I want to talk to you about supply chain basics. And I'm going to have Jason, please come back and talk to us more about supply chain economics. And we'll do that another time. God, again, I can't stress enough the importance of what he's doing online. But today I want to talk to you about supply chain basics. And the reason I want to cover basics, and I know when I talked to Jason originally, I said, people really seem to want that information. I get a lot of people who send me emails saying, I like when you went over the basics of blank, the basics of this. And so many of us in the logistics and transportation, warehousing, e-commerce space, we all know a piece of the supply chain work that we touch, but we don't know all of it. Jason knows all of it. So, <laughs> so Jason, let's talk about supply chain basics. Where do we start? Yeah, so I guess kind of begin as, you know, the one of the challenges is you say the phrase supply chain or supply chain management, everybody has sort of their own definition or own idea of it. And so just I think it's kind of a put us on a baseline, at least in Michigan State, how we think a supply chain is kind of three big, broad buckets. 
And those buckets are sourcing slash procurement, operations, and then logistics. And then cutting across all of those are things like technology, because obviously technology plays a key role in all three of those buckets. Finance cuts across all of those. Accounting cuts across all of those. You know, being able to work in teams and personal relationships. So we kind of think about it as sort of these three broad buckets and then recognizing there's common themes across all of those, you know, using technology, data-driven decision-making that we try to emphasize. Excellent, excellent. So the three buckets, again, were sourcing and procurement, operations, and logistics. So let's get into the first bucket there, sourcing and procurement. What is the function of that? And then what are some of the classes or what are some of the basics that we should all understand about sourcing and procurement? Yeah, so kind of as as we think about it, you know, sort of big decisions with that side is going to be one is the supplier selection decision. So understanding the process for doing requests for quotes, you know, RFQs, understanding how you would go about selecting a supplier based on different criteria. Once you've selected that supplier, how you manage that relationship. So the negotiation side of forming that contract, as well as adjusting as things evolve and go on, because I think that's one thing that too often, if there's a legalistic perspective taken from, you know, managing supplier relationships, it's, well, we've created this contract, we're going to abide by it. Well, you have to be flexible and be able to adapt. So one of the things I always tell my students is think of the contract as a broad framework from which we can work to resolve things out as best as possible without getting the lawyers involved in the room. So anytime anytime you hear the phrase lawyer and supply chain together, that's usually a problem. Somebody screwed up. (laughs) Somebody really, 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 really badly screwed up. So you've got that supplier selection, supplier relationship management, scorecarding suppliers. So making sure that you're measuring what you need to measure, coming up with balanced scorecards that don't put too much weight into one criteria versus another. We'll talk a lot about total cost of ownership and going through and doing the detailed calculations of figuring that out. A lot about managing commodities. So understanding, I'd say, at a broad level, for example, how does a futures market work? And understanding, okay, futures prices, contract prices, spot prices, how does this broadly fit into the mission of procurement? We'll talk a little bit about procuring from second tier suppliers and managing that extended supply chain. Increasingly with requirements for insurance suppliers are behaving in appropriate ways. We'll talk about, you know, third party auditing, auditing for social responsibility, rules about conflict minerals and providing a broad overview of the legal framework and rules of the game that we're working with. And so also talking about how you incorporate suppliers and new product development. And I think one of the key things that we really try to emphasize is not all supplier relationships are equal. There's going to be a very small number that should occupy the vast majority of your time and energy. Because I think that there's this tendency to say, well, we should partner with everybody. When in reality, no, you can't do that. You're going to partner with your the 10% of your closest suppliers that provide the most value to you. And for suppliers, you know, if you're sourcing MRO, maintenance, repair, and operating, you know, replacement items, you're going to buy those on a one-off transaction right. with no promise of future business. You know, that, right. that 
is how you should logically manage these things. Jason, if I, I'm from uh, automotive and I worked closely with purchasing for many years and I never was purchasing, but I was in the engineering and manufacturing side and they had these big suppliers that were very strategic and they were like joined at the hip. But those big companies that were as big as the automotive companies, they would be like Magna. You know, Magna could have bought one of them, TRW, and they would make huge systems for a car. So if you look at a car, it's body, interior, chassis, electrical powertrain. They might make a big percentage of that body or the, they might make the doors or the, their whole front end or the IP. And those were very strategic. And to your point, then they kind of got to the other end of it, which was we had to buy fasteners that are standard fasteners. And they would, I think, almost do like the reverse auction. Yep. Where it was before I forget. Could you explain what a reverse auction is? Yeah. So reverse auction, that's actually one of the topics we touch on that I kind of forgot about to, to mention. So a reverse auction would be a situation where I, as the buyer, will put out for bid for, let's say, 10,000 very generic fasteners. My suppliers now come bid on it, and typically it's going to be a single sealed bid, and he who bids the lowest ends up. And so <laughs> It's not fun business. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it is not fun. Suppliers do not like it. In my area of expertise of trucking, this is what happens on spot auction loads and Again, no supplier likes reverse auction, but they're a very effective tool. When you're concerned about being able to primarily compete on price, but also not invest that much time and energy in procuring a product or a service. Well, if you, but if you have, to your point, if you have thousands of suppliers, and that's easy for large companies to have thousands of suppliers, you got to do, it's the 80-20 rule. I'm going to spend, <laughs> or maybe it's the 90-10 rule. Yep. I'm going to spend 90% of my time with the top 10%. You mentioned scorecards. I'm a huge advocate of scorecards. And I also say I only want to measure key performance indicators. I'm going to do a separate podcast on the scorecards because one of the things that can drive me nuts is scorecards that measure everything. And so in effect, they measure nothing. And what I used to say, and I still say, I guess, is measure the things that can get you fired or yelled at. <laughs> so, so in our business in trucking, I'll talk about less than truckload for just a second. I would say on-time performance, it should be over 96%. So measure it for every carrier. What is it? So is it 97? Is it 95? If it's 95, let's talk. And maybe your target's 97 or 98. It depends on your definitions. Then I always say, I want to measure damage. It should be far less than 1%, right? So 99% on damage. Then I like to measure billing accuracy because I feel like if the bills aren't right, other stuff is wrong. Then I like to measure cost per pound, not because it's perfect, but because it just gives me a sense for where things are at. And it's interesting. A lot of people go, well, you can measure this, that, the other thing. And I was like, but those are the only things that my customer really cares about. On-time performance, some sort of cost measure, stuff getting damaged, and are my bills screwed up? And I always think it's not 30 things. And it's... No. I think and one other thing I always say, it also has to be discussed. I don't like the idea that, oh, our system created it and it just goes automatically to your email, Jason. You never have to talk to me and I never have to talk to you. From my perspective, the reason we created it is to begin the conversation. No, exactly. What I always teach my students about scorecarding is, and per your point, Joe, is there's diminishing returns for every additional measure you add. <laughs> So, right, I, right. so I think about it this way, like, you know, if we, you know, do a little graph, you can do that first measure, you get a lot of information. Second measure, you get a little bit more, but not quite as much. Third measure, 
And then pretty soon, once you get beyond five or six, you're usually just adding complexity. And so there's this trade-off of the more things you measure, not only you've got to collect a lot more information, but you then run into a situation where the creating the weighting scheme can start to get very complex. Right. Versus if you've got four or five things, okay, I want 30% of the weight on this, 20% of the weight on this, you can allocate it more easily. And I think the second thing I always tell the students about with scorecarding is, what is the goal of this? Is the goal to put all suppliers in a rank order from best to worst? Or is the goal to alert you if there's a problem? Because how you design that scorecard looks very different. And the you know case in point, Think of a driver's ed test, right? The BMV, or in Michigan, Secretary of State, does not care if you, as a 16-year-old, are the greatest 16-year-old driver ever. Which isn't saying much. (laughs) They just care that you're not a road hazard, right? So the logic is, is this person acceptable or not? So we're really only worried about the low end of the distribution. We're not worried about separating out the overachievers from the average. With a scorecard, is that your same purpose? Are you trying to separate out the very bad from average versus great? Or is your goal to really put everybody in some type of rank order for how you're going to, let's say, especially if you're multi-sourcing, let's say, three suppliers, you may be very interested in putting them in rank order because that's going to affect how you allocate future business. So you always have to think about designing the scorecard. What is the purpose of this? Am I looking at identifying bad or do I want to put people fairly reliably in some rank order? And it seems subtle, and this is why this gets taught in my capstone, but this has a huge effect on how you design a scorecard and how you collect information. Right. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, this diminishing returns on measurement. And I have a saying that only the most important metrics grow up to be key performance indicators. And how I see it is those key performance indicators, the four or five, tell you if those four or five are in order, chances are the other 30 are okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't matter in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if they're correlated, you know, if, you're, if those five are correlated with the others, and you know what? everything's possibly correlated, adding one more thing provides you very little additional information. So there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. So you talked about supplier selection. So I've given the training and I've spoken at conferences on how to select a 3PL. When I first did, it it was very self-serving because I managed a 3PL and I would say all the positive attributes, but I played it straight. I said, you know, this is what a good third-party logistics company should do. I still do that. I do that in consulting and advisory. The one thing that's kind of struck me, though, I can put on my sales hat for a second and go, I hate the idea that there's somebody has a process for supplier selection. So, Jason, let's just say you're running some large firm and you say, I need a new 3PL or I want to reopen this up. I would rather, as a sales guy, come to you, Jason, and convince you that I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. No need to talk to anyone else. Let's get the team together. Let's sign some papers. Let's get this thing rolling. But you're going to say to me, hey, Joe, you're fantastic. I want to find five other guys just like you and then compare you. (laughs) So it seems in a lot of ways like the supplier selection, while very important to the supply chain folks, is almost like the logistics sales guy's worst enemy, worst nightmare. I mean, unless you're the very best every single time, which is hard. 
No, it absolutely is. And my statement is always is processes are great because they're reproducible. And what I always caution students about is people come and go in companies. And you want that process to be something that's essentially institutionalized. And as long as that's the case, it can be continually refined and you learn from your mistakes. I mean, I think we could talk a long time about companies that have had bad experiences with selecting a supplier that ended up not panning out. And I'd be willing to bet more often than not that comes about because a process was not followed or somebody's like, well, I know this guy over here. And, you know, whenever a conversation was selecting someone for businesses, well, I know a guy that kind of makes me cringe a little bit. That's probably also me kind of the formal academic putting on my hat. But it's like, well, I know a guy is a little, right. little troubling. Well, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take out some of the human error, which let's just say you bump into a sales guy and he's very charismatic and go, God, I just, I so desperately want to work with that guy. Well, typically, if he's that good a sales guy, he's not managing the day to day and you realize, oh, we met with the A team quite a bit in the beginning. <laughs> and now, now, surprisingly, they're not around and I got to call them five times before they call me back. So anyway, it's interesting because I think when I first started in transportation and logistics, a lot of times purchasing wasn't involved in the decision. I can talk about one large automotive supplier when they picked us, it was all the logistics and guys at the plant. And then when purchasing kind of evolved and said, hey, we're going to have a meeting and we're going to go over this. Oh boy, did the tone change. <laughs> it was, uh, hey, we want to see your numbers. I want to see this, that, the other thing. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> the fun drained out of that project really quick. Anyway, so I'll summarize this real quick. So I took some notes for the sourcing and procurement bucket. You said supplier development, supplier selection, supplier relationships we just hit on. You talked about managing commodities and future markets and all that kind of stuff. You talked a little bit about scorecards, which we just talked about. And you do like negotiations and kind of how you're managing your suppliers. And again, I think I, I took some notes here when we were talking. You said you're trying to help your students leave there with kind of data-driven decision-making ability. So they don't have to be tricked by some charismatic sales guy coming in to sell them snake oil. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, that can be different things, you know, setting up templates. We spend a lot of time. So my capstone that I teach is case-based. So quite a few of the cases require students to come up with ways of creating templates. That way something's reproducible in Excel. Or, you know, taking a modest amount of data. So something like 20, 30,000 records and analyzing it in Excel and then being able to draw conclusions out of that. We do an importing strategies case where students have to figure out a mixed container configuration to import gas grills into the United States to take into account that this very large retailer has four different SKUs and they have different dimensions and they sell at different times of the year and coming up with solutions that are better than what you currently have. But I think the other key thing is, unfortunately, I think the U.S. education system teaches far too much there's right and wrong answers. But then you get out into the business world, or I should say just you get outside of formal schooling, and there's no right or wrong. Right. There's completely, you know, very well justified, logical process 
versus on the other end, completely nonsensical, how in the world could you have come up with this? Where did this come from type of solutions? Right, right. And the goal is to get students to think and say, okay, how can I use data? How can I analyze data, draw insights? And that way, the decisions I make are much more on that former end of the continuum rather than on the latter. But really, I think getting them out of the mentality of there's a right or wrong answer, because there's not right or wrong answers. There's justifiable answers versus non-justifiable answers. <laughs> Excellent. So again, supply chain at Michigan State, you guys teach it three buckets. First bucket we covered, which is sourcing and procurement. Second bucket is operations. What is operations? Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, so operations, so kind of I'm going to start it off and say there's a little bit of a bifurcation of whether you're talking about a company that's more service-oriented versus manufacturing-oriented. So if we're talking manufacturing, you're going to have things like, you know, designing your network of facilities. So are you going to have more of a market focus like, let's say, a Procter & Gamble would where you have a plant that specializes in a specific product, maybe for national distribution or more fine grain, a plant that specializes in a product for regional distribution versus if you're automotive, where you're going to have one plant that's making chassis, one plant that's making engines, and then one plant that does the assembly. So what we would call a process-focused structure. For the service side, it would be more of the service design, so customer contact, layout, timing of things. How are we going to deal with that? Talking about specific, you know, more tactical things, we'll teach a little bit of production scheduling, not too much because that tends to start overlapping a little more with industrial engineering, which is not what our program is about. So I'm assuming that gets into supply, though. That's the reason you're doing it. Yeah, it definitely gets into, you know, I, I want students, students have to know how an MRP algorithm works, or they have to know. Please describe material, what an MRP is. Yeah, so <laughs> material requirements plan. So if you're doing production scheduling, you know the exact composition of a product, you can take that exact composition, what we call a bill of materials, and then explode it out to figure out, okay, given lead times for different components, If I need to have finished goods ready by this point in time, I can walk back and plan out exactly when I need to order everything or when I need to start producing everything such that I can get everything around to do final assembly. So we'll teach the basics. If I can add one thing, and being an old automotive guy, I can say this is when you look at an automotive plant, and I've just been exposed to some other complex manufacturing operations outside of automotive, and it is such a delicate, intricate dance to get everything in the plant on the same day because you have, you're paying for that huge facility, you're paying for that line, all the workers, and all it takes is, hey, we didn't get one screw. Oh, no big deal. We'll just do the, nope. <laughs> it might shut down the whole damn line. And now you got people standing around and some of the work still has to get done at some point. So if you have thousands and tens of thousands of parts have to be there and that's, that's why we're talking about this, you know, strategies. Yeah. So, you know, we cover that. We'll cover quality management. So obviously immensely important. So Six Sigma, all the different quality tools, bone fish diagrams or fish bone diagrams. Uh, it's one of those days having enough caffeine. <laughs> you know, quality control charts will explain that. 
We'll talk a little bit about project management. So teaching principles of how do you manage projects? So Gantt charts, things like that. Again, in a lot of ways, you got an end date here, given all the components you need, walking it back to figure out when everything has to be done. So critical solving for critical paths and things like that. Within operations, we cover some of the more technical skills like forecasting. We sort of lump that in there and teach different forecasting approaches. And so kind of, I'd say, ops is sort of our biggest catch-all view on how we look at things. And so there's so many different pieces of that. You can go into one of them for a tremendous amount of time. Right. Well, that's what this is just an overview, but I do appreciate you. I think when we were talking offline, sometimes I would think of operations and think of supply chain underneath it. But as we talk about this, I think it's important for students and for practitioners like us to be able to say, I understand the operational mindset of how we're going to manage stuff. And so I know you're bumping up against mechanical engineering and the production guys, industrial engineering, but somebody has to be responsible for the supply. And I think in so many businesses now where you say, we don't do any production, (laughs) all we're doing is manage a whole bunch of other people who produce things. So that's not an uncommon way of doing business. In the past, you had your own plant <laughs> and you might be very vertically integrated. That's typically not what we do now. Yeah, I mean, take Apple as an example. I mean, Apple does not produce and assemble phones, right? That is outsourced to Foxconn. But you still have to have the internal expertise in order to do the quality control to understand the process Foxconn is going to be using such that when it comes time for contract negotiations, you can say, okay, these price figures we're receiving are reasonable. And so I think that that's been one of the challenges as we've seen firms evolve their strategies on whether we want to be vertically integrated or not is the failure to realize that even if I don't produce something, I still have to have a substantial amount of internal expertise in order to go out and do the negotiations. Yep. We see the same challenge, you know, on the, the logistics side where a company had a private fleet at one point in time, they decided they didn't want the private fleet anymore. So they now contracted out, but in the process, they fired everybody from the private fleet. And now they have no one who can go out and manage those relationships with carriers or say, okay, you know what, these prices we're receiving for these contract rates seem reasonable. So there's always this difference of as a company, you have to have a much broader knowledge base than what you actually physically do. And I think sometimes that gets lost, especially on I'm going to pick on the uh, folks on Wall Street who seem to not recognize that a lot of the time. Yep. And, you know, we didn't mention, you mentioned it when we were prepping for this, but, you know, increasingly consumers are looking for sustainability and ethical supply chains. I think that's something we could all, Sherry Heinish was just on my podcast and she's the supply chain queen. She said, just put one thing, you know, on your scorecard. Maybe it's carbon right? One thing on your scorecard that shows, hey, we're going to start tracking, uh, maybe that's the wrong one, but there's some some ways that we can track our environmental impact. And then ethical supply chains. We talked about Apple, they came under scrutiny because of Foxconn. I assume they've, they've tried to make some changes there, but it's well outside of Apple's walls. It's not even in the same country they're in. Well, it is in some cases. I think Foxconn's in the U.S. now, but you have to make sure that your suppliers are 
being ethical or being sustainable because that's going to blow back on you at some point. Not just because, first off, you want to do the right thing. But secondly, there is going to be consumers who say, I don't want to work with a company that has supply chains that are nasty. No, exactly. I think the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh back in, I believe, 2013 or 2014 is a great example of that. Describe that a little bit. Yeah, so Rana Plaza was a very large building that housed a lot of very small subcontractors that produced clothing and garments, and the building collapsed. It killed over a 1,000 people, and it turned out that the firms working in there were making the clothing that was being sold by essentially take your list of all the world's large retailers that in some way or another sell clothing. So Walmart, Target, Carefor, H&M, I mean, throw everybody in there. And there was a huge outcry about this. And essentially what came about was different sort of competing sort of standards that were come up with essentially on the one hand by European retailers and then the other hand by the U.S. retailers for improving conditions at supplier you know, foreign supplier locations, especially in developing countries. Yeah. And, you know, I hear the term fast fashion. And I know I have two daughters in their 20s who only, they don't want to buy fast fashion anything because they said the environmental impact and sometimes the unethical supply chains. They say, so they, I think I just heard the terms the other day. I think Everlane is one of the companies that they like, and then like Girlfriend Collective. So they're trying to, you know, a lot of companies are promoting the fact that buy from us because we have ethical supply chains. And I think we found that a lot of consumers will pay an extra extra dollar or two for that. No, exactly. There is certainly an increasingly a market for for that. And it's, you know, it's again, it's a way for companies to competitively differentiate themselves. Right. And guys, I say this quite a bit on my podcast. I'll say it one more time. When consumers want it, the companies that manage the supply chains are going to want it. And at some point, they're going to ask it of you. So, you know, for a long time, supply chains were completely invisible. (laughs) No, I remember 20 years ago, somebody in an interview said, you're a great supply chain guy. And I thought, what the hell is that supposed to mean? I don't even know what that is. It was not a thing. (laughs) It was like they made it up. I worked in the biggest, baddest supply chain on earth, automotive, but we didn't call it a supply chain. (laughs) We call them suppliers. Anyway, enough of my blather. So three buckets. The first one, sourcing procurement. We talked about that. Second one you just talked about, which is operations. The last one, our favorite, is... Yeah, it is logistics. And this is the one where I will not sound quite so foolish since this is my area of expertise. But, you know, my view of logistics is kind of three big pieces, the biggest being transportation, because that's where the vast majority of your spend is going to be. So, you know, here we're going to focus on different transportation modes. So, I mean, again, for hire, trucking is the primary mode, at least domestically for the U.S. It's like 70, 80% of the spend, right? Yeah, so I, I just, from the commodity flow survey from 2017, I just finished calculating all of this out. And so 41%, about 41 to 42% of the value of goods moved is handled by for hire trucking. 41% of the tons is handled by for hire trucking. Private fleets account for about another 30% of tons and value. So overall, trucking is 70% of tons moved in the U.S., and 70% of the value of goods that are moved. So if it's um, not moved on trucks, how is it moved? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's not even including the 
that's saying anything that moves by intermodal rail truck, I'm going to throw that to rail. And same way, I'm going to put parcel as sort of a separate piece of that. Right. But so different transportation modes, managing carriers, you know, all of that for the different modes. Logistics, we'll talk about importing strategies. So, you know, do you come in through LA Long Beach? We've had so much discussion recently and the business media about how with the need to rapidly restock the shelves, especially with products from Asia, everything right now is coming through LA Long Beach because it's two weeks faster. It's not, been, than, not been easy, has it? <laughs> no, it, it has not. It hasn't helped the Union Pacific has thrown $5,000 surcharge on small shippers. But that's a completely different story. But so we talk about transportation modes, managing carriers, and then so that's kind of sort of sub bucket one. Sub bucket two is going to be warehousing. You know, where do you locate warehouses? How do you manage if you outsource warehousing operations to 3PLs? Talk as well, I lump it within sort of warehousing broadly, but distribution channel selection. So do you go directly to the consumer? Do you sell through wholesalers if you're a manufacturer? Do you sell directly to retailers managing those different channels? So sorry, marketing folks, but I'm going to claim that piece for uh, today. <laughs> and then kind of the third big bucket is managing finished goods inventory or what we call independent demand inventory. So stocking locations, setting safety stocks and things of that sort. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned we're going, if you're listening a year from now, maybe you forgot about COVID, but it was a thing in 2020. And I've been talking to a lot of people who, you know, got their stuff stuck in California. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, FedEx, UPS is overwhelmed from what I, from two weeks ago when I had the conversations, they were looking for space to get push stuff off. But what's interesting is with all these problems, we saw a huge surge in online orders because all of us wanted to stay at home. And what's interesting is I think some of that's here to stay. So we're going to see a big change uh, as we move from buying stuff retail to buying it online. And, you know, I just had a conversation with AJ Kanajau on a podcast about e-commerce lifecycle. And boy, I like to buy stuff online like everyone else, but sometimes it can be a real pain because I've just bought some shirts, got three shirts, now I got to send them back. This is the second time I'm sending them back. I was like, I buy from this store all the time offline when I just drove over to their store that they recently closed. So yeah, the world is changing really quickly on that distribution and those channels. No, it is. And I think the thing that's still almost surprising, though, is even with the tremendous boost we've seen for e-commerce, the Census Bureau data shows that still for Q2 2020, only 16.1% of sales are e-commerce. Right. So that, that's the that's quote. That's, that's the same thing we quoted in the podcast, 15 yeah. or 16%. Yeah. So it's, it's and the thing to keep in perspective, though, is that 16%, we grew e-commerce and one quarter as much as we had since 2016. Whoa. So, so if you look at how long it took a four percentage point bump, that took four previous years to get to. And so when we talk about chaos, I mean, we saw this tremendous surge in e-commerce demand. And I think the one thing, you know, I talk a lot about retail in my class, just because I think there's so many misconceptions is we keep talking about the death of brick and mortar. 
And the one game I'd always ask people to play is go online, look up the largest retailers in the United States. Of the top 20, identify how many are e-retailers. The answer is you'll find one, and that's Amazon, which, by the way, does not sell as much product as certainly not Walmart. Walmart's two or three times more retail sales every right. year than Amazon right. still. And Kroger does more selling of product than Amazon when it comes to pure retail, or at least they used to as of 2018, as well as Costco. So when you look at retail, Amazon is the complete and total outlier firm. And that the real dominance in retail today in the United States is brick and mortar firms that have multi-channel options. And then we're increasingly seeing more on the department store side, JCPenney and Sears are doing very poorly, but the discount department stores, your Ross, TJX companies, and quite a few others, they're doing very well. Right. And so, you know, it's interesting. I just did a podcast, the same with AJ Kanajan, and we talked a lot about DTC, direct-to-consumer, which is interesting because some of those large firms like Warby Parker, that was a, a big success story. Well, it started online, but then they ended up with stores. I think we see the same with Casper. So I think the idea, you know, we're right now we're talking about e-commerce or DTC versus retail. At some point that won't be in our heads. It'll just be, this is how we buy. And I think Best Buy is a perfect example. I love the idea of touching the laptop I'm going to buy. I like to buy light laptops. I want to lift it up. And somebody can say, well, it's only a pound or two pounds. I need to lift it up. (laughs) I need to see the center of gravity. So I buy a lot from Best Buy. But they always say, okay, yeah, we'll ship it to you. So I pick it out there. So that's like a showroom. And then they ship it to me. So I think we'll see more of that kind of thing. And I do need to buy a new mattress. I struggle with the idea that I'm going to buy a mattress without going and laying down on it. And somebody goes, oh, you could order it, put it on your bed, and then lay down and go, oh, no, that, you know, that's a little hard or a little soft. That doesn't make any sense to me. I have to be able to go try it out. So there's going to be that merger of how we buy. Yeah, and, and that's, I always think, the thing is, this is where I love the fact that there's unbiased government data that's collected as well as you can, because, you know, you, you'll you read about these things like brick and mortar retails dying, and I just sit here and I'm like, uh, are you really sure about that? Because I think Walmart and Target just had some pretty darn good quarters, and I don't know if Amazon's opening stores. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, I don't know if anyone's driven by a Home Depot or a Lowe's since we started reopening things in May, but it's pure chaos. I mean, they're printing money right now. Right. Well, that stuff, you're never going to buy a rake (laughs) online. Most people won't. I think it just makes sense to go down there. But I think also, we see Amazon opening stores. Not a lot of them, but they're dipping their toe in that. And I do think there's, you know, it's a weird thing because we still want experiences. I always just, when Amazon came in and said, hey, we're going to take over the book business. It was like, did I dislike buying books? I dislike buying garbage cans. I dislike buying a lot of other things. Why are you taking away the book buying experience? That's what I want to do on a fall afternoon when we don't have football. <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy to me that people say that, retail is going to completely die because we still want those experiences. Exactly. And I mean, again, it's a transition where for me, the concern always comes in as an academic. And I think this is where, you know, you put the human side to students is what effect does this have on the workers? Because there is no doubt that the decline of your traditional high-end department stores or, you know, your Sears, maybe not even high-end, but your 
department stores like your Sears and your JCPenney, you're moving individuals who had good jobs into warehouse jobs that are much more physically demanding, typically for lower pay. And also, this is the other thing, they're much more centralized into a much smaller number of locations. And so what are the broad impacts that this has for employment? Or, you know, I talk a lot about this in my capstone with discussing contemporary manufacturing in the United States, is making very clear, if somebody asks a question, was NAFTA or was the normalization of trade relations with China good for the U.S. manufacturing worker? The answer is a resounding no. There's overwhelming evidence from studies from MIT, from different author teams, that the normalization of trade relations with China just devastated U.S. manufacturing in the 2000s. Right. Now, I, think, I think China's going down in manufacturing, too. I mean, a number of workers doing it. I haven't seen those statistics. I could certainly see that being the case. That's automation. <laughs> yep. And, well, that's a challenge, too. You have automation taking place at the same time. But so tying it into the contemporary discussions, like, okay, so well, are tariffs a solution? And my response to that is overwhelmingly no, because the problem is this ship sailed 20 (laughs) years ago about offshoring of manufacturing combined with automation. So the question now is, as you go out, you know, as, as somebody graduated from undergrad is, here's the facts. How do you go about making strategic decisions thinking about these situations? How do you go and be an informed citizen? Because that is, to me, the purpose of a four-year education. It's not just this. We're not a trade school. I I get in this fight all the time with recruiters if they'll say, we want this specific skill. And my statement is, and if that software changes, which it does, you know, very frequently, what have I gained? And the answer is, we're not a trade school. We are teaching more broadly than that. That's why when I'll see a lot of people say, well, are you concerned about Google offering these tailored courses? My response is absolutely not, because no offense to Google, but nobody at Google has the broad understanding of supply chain as a topic, as you're going to get from faculty at a Michigan State, a Ohio State, a University of Arkansas, University of Tennessee. You know, you're not going to get that. Plus, they don't play football. Come on. They don't play football and they don't provide a chance for 50,000 young people to congregate and have fun. <laughs> right, exactly. So, Jason, this has been great. I'm going to summarize real quickly and then uh, you could have some final words on this topic. So, you talked about an MSU, the way you guys look at the world is supply chain is three big buckets, lots of little things within those buckets. Sourcing and procurement is number one, operations, number two, and the logistics, number three. And within that, uh, lots, lots of things going on. So give us some final thoughts on the topic and then uh, want to hear what's going on with Jason Miller. Yeah, so I think kind of final thoughts is, again, is this is a field that was evolving rapidly. We're going to see even more rapid evolution now as we get, you know, as we move through the pandemic. And finally, once we get to the other the other side of it, hopefully in 2021. The one thing I always tell students is it's amazing how history repeats itself. So you always need to understand the history of how we got here with these things. I mean, Amazon.com. Deep down is a glorified version of Sears Roebuck with a very fancy version, <laughs> very fancy catalog, right? So history has a lot of lessons for us. And so there's going to be tremendous temptation to hear people say, well, everything's changed because of COVID. So I, I see so many 
folks saying, we're going to move so much manufacturing out of China. And I sit here and say, okay, let's see how you're going to be able to relocate manufacturing when this has been specialized. There's not many suppliers that do it, and you have an entire ecosystem supporting it. Certainly some products, personal protective equipment, active ingredients for pharmaceuticals. Yes, we will see some of that brought back right. to the United Strategic States. Strategic stuff, yeah. yeah. And that needs to be done. There is a, you know, I think there's a logical recognition of that, that we cannot be dependent on a foreign country for 80% of our active pharmaceutical ingredients. However, it's not like we're going to start making iPhones in the United States. That is not a cost-effective <laughs> strategy. It, it's interesting, Jason. I heard somebody say this is you can't buy somebody who's saying, I want made in America t shirts. They're like, there is no made in America t shirts. And then I think even the political hats, somebody says, those aren't made in America because you can't get a hat made in America. <laughs> look at the price. I mean, the scary thing is go look at Census Bureau data. Back in the 1970s and 80s, we did make a lot of that in America. I mean, so that's part of the evolution. But I'd say the one sort of caution I have is recognizing that our company is really going to make multi-billion dollar changes in response to a once in a hundred year event. And I think the answer to that is probably not nearly as much as folks think. No. And so whatever you do, do not assume that the old rules no longer apply. The old rules, not in the big scheme of things, not that, that, that much is going to change on the other side of this. Right, right. So, Jason, what's going on with you? I know you do work not only at Michigan State, but I know you're uh, very active in the logistics and transportation community. What's going on? So as a research faculty member, I teach one semester a year. So I teach um, in the spring three sections of my capstone. So during the roughly eight months of the year that I'm not teaching other than doing executive education through Michigan State, I spend the vast majority of my time doing research. A couple of the projects were working on now looking at how new truck orders are affected more by spot prices than by contract prices. We had originally terminated the data collection for that in December of 2019, and we had started doing the write-up of results in February. So we may go back if we get a revision and expand this through COVID and see how the dynamics changed and especially how this very strong relationship between spot prices and new orders is going to have been muted. I would bet a good steak dinner on that. So doing some work in that space, I'm still looking at how the electronic logging device mandate has affected safety within the trucking sector. A couple of colleagues of mine, Alex Scott and Andy Balthrop, uh, we just published a paper looking at the broad, broad, broad effects of that for the whole industry, looking now more narrowly for large players and saying, okay, did this mandate have more effect for younger firms versus older firms, for firms that used contract owner operators versus employee drivers? And then I think probably moving forward a little bit, kind of building off a lot of the topics I've been getting interested in through a lot of the posting on LinkedIn, is taking some big sort of macro level looks on, you know, can we develop some new indices for trucking activity? My colleague, young boy, and I just rolled out a the Michigan State for Hire Truck Ton Mile Index just this week that nice. provides, a, <laughs> provides a new index of activity that is a non-black box completely. Here is exactly what we've done using all government data to convert 
data from the commodity flow survey. So you're showing your work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause that, and we'll get that published um, eventually. And then I think I'll probably get into some stuff, you know, kind of macro level manufacturing topics. Cause there's been a lot of, you know, discussion about inventory levels and things like that through COVID. And so I'm actually curious to go back and see some of the dynamics as we get on the other side of this. Did co- do companies decide to build up raw material inventory on the other side or are they liquidating finished goods? But rather than anecdotal reporting from different media outlets, actually seeing what the broad representative government statistics have to say. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Jason, I can't thank you enough for coming and giving us this overview. of. Well, first off, sharing just what you just talked about, which is basically making better decisions through data analysis. Promise me you'll come back and do this again. Because oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. But I also appreciate you giving us this overview because, again, this is you're getting an overview of supply chain basics. You don't get into the details, but you got an overview from, again, professor at one of the very best universities in supply chain. So thank you so much. No, hey, thank you so much, Joe, for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. And then thank all of you for listening. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 